Today's scripture reading is found in Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aerogopolis, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Are you bringing some strange ideas to our ears? We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. I uh, sent out an email yesterday asking if you were an Athenian, and I know that deeply offended some of you, uh, some of you Auburn fans and Georgia Tech fans, but I understand we do actually have a couple of Athenians with us this morning. Uh, Grace and her roommate are here, and so we're glad to have you. So let's go to the Lord uh, and ask for his help uh, one more time before we open his word. Father, we are thankful for this time we have together looking into your word this morning. I pray for your help as we open it up and and see what you have for us. Father, I pray that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might see clearly how to walk. We know that All truth is contained in your word and that your son was made incarnate so that we could see what truth walking looks like. And now we've been given your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So Father, we are surrounded by truth and I just pray that you would help us to latch onto it this morning, help us to cling to it once we see it and live according to it so that the world, this, this dying world, might see a difference in us. And that our proclamation of Jesus Christ and Christ alone might make sense to this world. We pray, Father, that you would help us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Although you may not be familiar with the name John Baptiste, Alphonse Carr, I bet you're very familiar with something he said. In 1849, the French novelist and journalist, he wrote the now famous words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The number of advancements that we 
uh, have seen over the last few years that have impacted the world that we live in uh, is stunning. We've seen advancements in the areas of science and technology, medicine, and, and public policy. We've also witnessed societal and sociological changes that in many ways have restructured our culture and in some cases have actually made things better. At the heart of every human advancement is this hope that there will be lasting change that improves the human condition. But advancements don't always equate to change that we'd point to as improving our condition. Things often change, yet things often stay the same. Our journey through the book of Acts reminds us of that very thing this morning. This phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same, perfectly captures the human condition and the dilemma facing the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. So if you're not already there, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 34. No matter how much we advance, no matter how completely we address an issue or offer a solution to a problem, no matter how much things change, there are some things that are going to remain the same. And Paul sees this firsthand in Athens. Athens was an advanced city that enjoyed many luxuries as the intellectual center of the world at this time in history. It was the hub for philosophy and education and owed much of its art, beauty, culture, and knowledge to the philosophical giants that once called Athens home. But beneath the thin veneer of beauty and advancement, Paul would identify something that had not changed at all, and it was this. Humanity's need for the God who knows and who can be known. Remember that Paul has been brought from Berea to Athens in an effort to protect him from those Thessalonican agitators. And it's, it's in Athens that Luke tells us what Paul saw, how it affected him, and what he did as a result. So I, I see in our text this morning three scenes. Three scenes. And, and the first one is this. I, I've titled the scene this, Provoked to Preach. We're going to see what that means in verses 16 to 18. The, the second title for the second scene is Positioned to Proclaim. We'll see that in verses 19 to 31. And then finally, the, the last scene I've titled Practitioner of Perseverance. And that will take us from verses 32 to 34. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the second scene. But let's first get a better understanding for why Paul was provoked to preach. Look at verses 16 and 17. While Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul is escorted to Athens to wait for Silas and Timothy, and in his waiting, he becomes distressed by what he sees in this grand city. While the NIV uses the, the word distressed here, other translations, they, they say Paul's spirit 
was provoked. In other words, he was so stirred by what he saw that he was incited to reason in the synagogue and preach in the marketplace. But what was it that got Paul so riled up? We see it there at the end of verse 16. The city was full of idols. As grand as this city was, as much change as had taken place in this capital of intellectualism and culture, it did not satisfy Paul. Quite the opposite. It provoked him. But notice that he he didn't start a riot. He didn't start knocking over statues. What did he do? He reasoned in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace. This brings to mind a couple of diagnostic questions that I think would help us if we spent thinking about this afternoon. Number one, are there things in our lives that we're doing or or things that we're putting false hope in that should distress us? In other words, what are our idols? Second question, what are the idols of our culture that distress us or uh, cause our spirits to be provoked, and why? Are these things that we see our, our family and friends and neighbors or just culture in general doing that indicate they are putting their hope in that which will ultimately leave them spiritually bankrupt? For those who might allege that, that calling out idolatry is something that only the self-righteous do, we know that that accusation cannot stick to Paul. It wasn't the self-righteousness that was causing Paul to be distressed. The reason Paul was distressed and provoked in his spirit was because this idolatry that he had identified in Athens was first and foremost offensive to God. This reaction we see from Paul is generated by love, not self-righteousness. Romans 8.16 tells us the Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John will, will likewise tell us that children of God are known for their love. So the Christian who is distressed or provoked by idolatry, whether theirs or others, they are distressed or provoked because We bear the Spirit of God, and our spirits are distressed when we and others settle for anything less than what God offers us in Christ Jesus. Are you distressed by idolatry? Does it provoke your spirit within you? So if riots and and statue toppling is not the answer, what is? It's the gospel, right? As we've seen many times already in other cities, Paul was ministering to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue, but his being distressed and provoked in spirit also led him to reason with and preach to two different groups of people that we see in verse 18. Look at it. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Luke mentions two groups of philosophers 
were debating with Paul in the marketplace, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Philosophy in general seeks to answer the question, what is the good life? And secondarily, how you can attain it. In my preparation this week, I came across an interview with a philosopher who was thinking back on an earlier time in his life when he was helped by a certain type of therapy, a certain type of counseling. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of you are familiar with this. You've heard of it. This, this philosopher was so impacted by cognitive behavioral therapy that he wanted to meet and interview the, the two men who had developed it. And I, I was interested to learn that the two men who developed cognitive behavioral therapy were inspired by the ideas of two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Fascinating, right? That this group that was debating with Paul all these years later would impact two men, two scientists, who would develop cognitive behavioral therapy. So what's my point? It's this. Philosophy shapes everything we believe. I had a philosophy professor back in seminary who one day became very frustrated with our class because everybody but me was cutting up and not paying attention. Um, My professor closed his book. He leaned over the lectern and very softly said to us in the classroom, you guys may not be taking this very seriously at all, but let me assure you, the philosophy of today, the philosophical thoughts that are being postulated and informed today will be tomorrow's commonly held beliefs. It got our attention. We heard that and, and we sat up straight and listened to what he had to say. Whether we know it or not, philosophy shapes what we believe. The critical theory that you see on the news every day is being debated in school board meetings in Virginia and in other places across this country. Where do you think those ideas were first postulated? It was in the university, right? They became uh, philosophical propositions that have been passed down over time, and now they are commonly held beliefs in our day and age, and they are causing craziness and chaos. Philosophy shapes everything we believe. Paul knew this, and he wanted to share the God-given revelation that he cherished with those who would listen. So what did these two groups that he was reasoning with and preaching to believe? In short, the Epicureans believed that the highest ideal for mankind was pleasure and happiness. It said they believed pleasure was to be attained by avoiding excesses and also avoiding any fear of death. So the Epicureans believed the gods, if they existed, were too distant too detached and too uninterested in human affairs to intervene. Diogenes, an early Greek philosopher, sums up the Epicureans' belief by saying, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good or pleasure can be attained, evil or pain can be endured. 
the Stoics believed that everything is God. So, so we would say that they were pantheist or panentheist. They had a high view of destiny that taught them that everything that happened to them was prescribed, right? It was written in the stars. They believed that you could not control what happens to you, but that you could control your response. And these beliefs earned them their reputation for being indifferent. So it's easy to see how these two philosophies still shape the beliefs of many people today. It's also easy to see why Paul was so troubled by the beliefs of these Athenians. Luke tells us that some of the Epicureans and Stoics were bothered by Paul as well. Some of them called him a babbler. This term, babbler, it referred to a bird that would pick up seeds or, or grain. It later became associated with people who accumulated teachings and sayings of others and passed them off as their own, not really understanding what they were saying. These learned men were mocking Paul and attempting to belittle him and his beliefs. Some of the others said that he seemed to be advocating foreign gods because they were not familiar with the story of this God-man that Paul spoke of who had defeated death. So while there are many things we could learn from this scene, this is for sure, right? Paul was not going to be intimidated by these naysayers. There are many people who advocate for temperance when speaking up for truth today. But Paul shows us the example of someone who is not concerned about the wrong perceptions of the watching world. Paul was distressed by the idolatry that he saw in Athens, and this led to him preaching the gospel to all who would listen. But not everyone mocked him and made fun of him. Because Paul was provoked to preach, his preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, it piqued the interest of some of these Epicureans and Stoics. We know this because some of them invited Paul to say more. This is our second scene where we see that Paul was positioned to proclaim. Positioned to proclaim. Look at verse 19. Then they took him and, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians, verse 21, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Though some had openly mocked Paul, the Holy Spirit was stirring, and the Lord providentially provided a way for Paul to address the larger gathering of this court at the Areopagus. This so-called new teaching that Paul was presenting, it got the attention of the Athenians, in part because the Holy Spirit was at work, but also because entertaining new ideas was what the Athenians did. Luke provides this little editorial note in verse 21 that highlights this. Some of you are familiar with podcasting. It's become the new frontier of information sharing. If you're not familiar with podcasts, think of radio programming that instead of coming over the airwaves, it's being broadcasted over an online connection, like over your computer or handheld device. Anyone with a computer and an online connection can now be a broadcaster. 
to give you an idea of the growth of popularity of this medium, in 2018, it was reported that there were over 550,000 podcast shows, and of those 550,000 shows, they had produced over 18.5 million episodes. It's a lot of material. But just three years later, in April of this year, it was reported that there are now over 2 million shows. So from 550,000 to 2 million, and over 48 million episodes that have been produced by those shows. We, like the Athenians, enjoy talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. One commentator explains that the preacher in Ecclesiastes realizes that both his desire to understand all of life as well as the limitations on his ability to do so have been ordained by God. God has hardwired into us a desire to know things. We see this desire as being misused whenever our desire to pursue knowledge fails to give glory to God. For example, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and with these Athenians that Paul is addressing. Paul, too, is, is a good example of this. Remember, earlier in his life, he used his intellect to destroy the church. But now that he has been saved, he's devoted his mind to pursuing knowledge for the glory of God. We can say with almost complete certainty that Paul had studied the great minds, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And that his study even impacted his thinking and writing. I'm convinced that we see an example of this that I'll briefly mention in a few minutes, later on a few verses later. Regardless, God had positioned Paul to have the microphone, as it were. And what we're about to see next is that the stage has been set. Paul has been served up a golden opportunity to address some of the most well-educated people on planet Earth. He's been positioned to proclaim. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So to pause right there for just a moment. We'll come back to the proclamation. I want us to notice a few things first. First, Paul acknowledges that the Athenians are very religious. Friends, this is a reminder that everyone on planet Earth is very religious. Nowadays, we might hear people say that he or she is spiritual, but they mean the same thing, right? It's two sides of the same coin. And this reminds us, too, that even the most devout, self-proclaimed atheist is very religious or spiritual. You do realize that there is no such thing as an atheist, right? Everybody worships a god. Even the, the self-proclaimed atheist who 
looks in the mirror to brush his teeth or shave is looking at his God. We are all religious. We are all spiritual. And Paul recognized that even the Epicureans were religious. Even though they might not think about the gods because they believed they were too distant and distracted to pay mind to humanity, the Epicureans were still worshipers. Paul was not intending this observation of their religiosity to be a slight or a put-down. No, they, they would have taken this as a compliment. Something else that we can observe from Paul's opening statement in the Areopagus is that objects of worship are universal. Ours may not look like statues, but we all have objects of worship. Paul's insights from walking around Athens reminds us worship is not reserved from 9.30 to 10.30 and 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock in church buildings on Sunday mornings. We worship all the time. And here's the scary thing. Sometimes, like the Athenians, we aren't even aware of it. Paul, in remarking on the inscription to an unknown God, he point blank tells the Athenians that they are ignorant of the very thing they worship. Because the Greeks believed in a pantheon of gods, they were afraid of leaving out some and and potentially offending them. Their superstition led to them doing things in the eyes of Paul that revealed their ignorance. Friends, how careful are we with what we give our hearts to? Are we aware of the things that we are worshiping? Having just declared that the Athenians are ignorant of the very thing they worship, Paul says, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You realize the gospel demands that it be proclaimed? That is one of the reasons why Christian corporate gatherings have centered around preaching for the last 2,000 years. We are a proclaiming faith, a faith that carefully handles the message from the king and takes seriously its charge to herald this message and proclaim it to all who will listen. Paul understood he was a messenger for the king, and that's why he challenged the deeply held beliefs of his audience. As with Genesis 1-1, the Bible does not seek to argue for God's existence. The Bible does not seek to present a case for God's existence. The Bible does not make a defense for God's existence. What does the Bible do? It proclaims God's existence. Paul does likewise. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So I, I want us to see four points to Paul's sermons, a sermon to the Athenians. Briefly, we'll, we'll, we'll go over this pretty quickly. Number one, who God is. Number two, what he has done. Number three, why he has done it. And then fourthly, why it matters to us. So who God is, what he has done, why he's done it, and why it matters to us. First in verses 24 and 25, who is God? He is the creator and keeper. This would challenge the the beliefs of both the Epicureans who believed the deities were distant and detached as well as the Stoics who were pantheists. Paul is telling this audience that God is 
creator and sustainer of all. He is very near to, yet distinct from his creation. If that's not enough, he attends to his creation. Not only did God make the world and everything in it, but he is Lord over it. He is master of the house. Paul's usage of the word Lord would have communicated clearly to the Athenians, who Caesar, who was in charge of all of the known world at that time, himself proclaimed to be the Lord. But unlike Caesar, the God that Paul was proclaiming could not be bound by and didn't need temples that had been built by human hands. As the creator and keeper, God made us in his image so that both individually and corporately, we would be the temples that he resides in. And this turns the religion of the Epicureans and Stoics on its head. God is close, but he is not dependent on his creation. We, however, are completely dependent on him. He doesn't need one single thing from us, but we are desperate for the life and breath and everything else that he gives us. Moving on to verse 26, we'll see Paul's second point in his sermon. What has he done? From one man, verse 26 says, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 26 tells us what God has done. There's always been a purpose and plan to his creation. It wasn't happenstance or a whim that led to his creating the world and everything in it. Verse 26, we see God's sovereign plan for and control over his creation. From Adam, the whole earth would be populated and each and every person would exist exactly where and when God determined they would. Verse 26, it should bring us comfort because in it we realize there are no accidents when it comes to God's creation. This is why we hold the sanctity of life in such high regard. Verse 26 should give us an all-encompassing appreciation for our existence. Young people, let me talk to you for just a moment. I know the question will often come up in your minds, do I matter to God? Without hesitation, Paul here tells us in verse 27 of Acts 17, yes, you do. There is purpose in who God has created you to be. When he has created you to be here and where he has placed you. So if God is creator and if he has sovereignly exercised control over us and creating us and placing us where he has placed us and when he has placed us where we are, we have to know why. Why has God done what he has done? Paul explains this in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far off from any one of us. One of the consequences of sin is that it has a way of distorting and muffling God's purposes. God's stated goal in creation and sovereignly placing his image bearers is that we would seek him and worship him. Romans 1 reminds us, though, that, that what can be known about God is, is plain to us. We suppress the truth. 
our suppression of the truth distorts and muffles God's purpose of us seeking him and worshiping him. I mentioned earlier that Paul had more than likely read Plato. It's in verse 27 that I'm convinced Paul alludes to this great philosopher. Paul's quotes from the Athenians philosophers in verse 28, but it seems like he's referencing Plato's allegory of the cave in verse 27. While we don't have time to dive into that this morning, Paul is clearly using the language of the Athenians to communicate the gospel. He's not watering down the gospel in the slightest, but he's taking what truth can be gleaned from what they know, and he's connecting the dots. Paul is saying in verse 27 that he serves the God who knows and who can be known. Paul said a lot in these verses, but the importance of his words in verses 29 to 31 for the Athenians and for us cannot be overstated. In verses 29 to 31, Paul tells us why, who God is, what he's done, and why he has done it. He tells us why those things matter to us. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul turns the wisdom of the Epicureans and Stoics back on themselves. Follow his logic here. Because we are God's offspring and because we are not just material substances, neither is God. Nor can he be represented by these material substances. God is alive. God knows his creation. He can be known by his creation. That's why verse 30 has so much punch For Paul to say, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, doesn't mean that he excused or excuses sin. What Paul is saying is that God didn't exact swift and decisive judgment in the past against all mankind. What the Athenians must understand is this. They are guilty before the holy God. They must repent of their sin. Friends, God does not suggest that we repent. He doesn't beg us to repent. He commands that all people everywhere are to repent. Here's Paul's big finish. The reason that we are commanded to repent is that God has set a day when he will judge the world and we can rest assured that the judgment will be with the justice and all of this Just judgment will be overseen by King Jesus. Verse 31 is one verse that you can point to for why Christians make so much of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says Jesus' resurrection is proof that this judgment is coming and that Jesus is worthy of presiding over it. Not only is the resurrection proof that the judgment is coming, It is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted 
as atonement for our sin and that it has satisfied God's wrath toward our sin. The resurrection of Jesus is a big deal and it commands us all to repent of our sin. Lastly, and this point will be very brief, we see a closing scene which I'm calling practitioner of perseverance. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Friends, anytime we proclaim the gospel, we are guaranteed one of three responses. We see all three here in these final verses of Acts 17. Some of the court of the Areopagus, they sneered at Paul. They, they mocked him and laughed at him because this news that he had heralded to them, it, it sounded absurd to them. Their response to Paul was an emphatic no. Others, were told, said, we want to hear you again on this subject, right? Maybe. Ever the crowd to, to want to feed their curiosity, they wanted to hear Paul again on the matter. So, they're not sure where they come down on this proclamation of the gospel. And then we learn that others, the third group, said yes. Dionysius, who was of the court of the Areopagus. So he was either Epicurean or a Stoic. And a woman named Damaris. We don't know anything about her at this point. And a number of others with them. So you might be wondering why I titled this scene Practitioner of Perseverance if the focus of these verses is on the response of these people that Paul was proclaiming to. Here's why. People's responses to the gospel message will vary. And we cannot let their responses be what determines our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. We must be practitioners of perseverance. Great Commission is not dependent upon whether someone says no, maybe, or yes. Looking ahead to next week's text, Acts 18.1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He could have been so demoralized by the open mocking and shame that he packed it in, said, I'm going back to Antioch or Tarsus. But he didn't do that. No, he persevered. And we must as well. So with a closing to a chapter like this, we must ask ourselves where we are in this final scene. Have we responded to the gospel? If you've heard it before, you have responded. It's either been no, maybe, or yes. And I ask you today, have you responded? What is your answer? Do you say no? Do you say maybe? Or have you been following Christ for a while? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Everything around us may change, but our need for the God who knows and who can be known, that stays the same. Let's pray.
Father, you're so good to us to give us this passage this morning where we can see real humanity wrestling with the proclamation of the gospel. We see these men and women who had brilliant minds and who had aligned themselves with worldly philosophy. Some of them were mockers who sneered at your servant Paul. Some were curious and said, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe a year from now. And then there were others who said yes, who heard the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection. And they said, I want to align my life with this man, with this God-man who has taken my sin upon himself, borne your wrath against my sin. Father, it's my prayer for those in this room today who have said no or maybe that today would be the day. Father, you command us all to repent of our sin, and I do pray that there would be friends in this room who would do that today if they have not trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin and turn to him alone for new life. Father, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word and that you would apply it to our hearts this week, that we would think deeply on what our idols are. Father, that we would be quick to repent of that and that we would crush and and break those things that stand in the way of us worshiping you and you alone. Father, I pray that as we go throughout this week and, and see television commercials and and have conversations with people that, that relay to us uh, this culture's deep love for idols. Father, I pray that you would help us in our response. Help us to be truthful to those that we have conversations with. Father, help us to be consistent in our consumption of materials and not make idols of, of those things. Father, I pray that you would help us as we address our idolatry and the idolatry of this culture. Help us to focus our eyes on you, the Son, and the Spirit, and help us to encourage others around us to do the very same thing. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.